If you've missed the last few weeks, I want to just encourage you. Our website, you can go to the media page and catch up on that. We've been doing a series on the fact that there are things that we miss sometimes, that we can see without seeing. We talked about how we could, uh, it's not about trying harder. And we talked about how Jesus came and changed everything. I mentioned that when we were celebrating communion. But him coming here did, it literally changed everything. I hesitate to say that word literally. Have you noticed that's crept into our dialogue today, our, our language? And there's sometimes as we go through life, these little sayings creep in and it's hard not to say them. You know, remember how like was so, such a big deal? I'm like, and I did this like, oh, anyway, and I'm all, uh, but having said that, I really mean literally. He literally changed everything. And when he came, you know, I think most Christians, we were aware of the fact that he came, and of course, we just celebrated communion. Well, yes, he changed everything. He died for our sins. Yes, no question. But I think what we miss sometimes is how radically different that was, not just him dying, but everything he said. And what he taught, there's a reason that the Jewish religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the ones who were educated, for lack of a better term, the professional Jews, they knew exactly what he was saying and doing. They knew that when he said certain things, like, wait a minute, you can't say that. You're not allowed to say those things. But as Christians, all these years later, since we have the advantage of the whole Bible, we just kind of absorb it all and we miss those things. And we don't see them because they're radical, radical, radical. I love how Pastor Newby used to say, you know, there are two ways to get to heaven. Most people are like, no, 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 Jesus is the only way. I know there is two ways. You could follow all the rules. Did you ever catch that? You could follow all the laws. You could keep every one of the Ten Commandments, and then the Jews were so careful to make sure they didn't miss any of the Ten Commandments, they, they specified and put detail into those with, with up to 600 other rules that just explained the Ten. You could follow every one of those, but anybody even close to that here? I'm just curious. I mean, I know some of you are way better than me, and there's no question about that, but the fact is, never, not one of us has, have ever gotten close most of us failed before we got out of our twos, if you think about it, and threes. And then when you come of age and really realize what right and wrong are, you've already violated. I mean, that's kind of how it happens is you're like, oh, wait, I'm in trouble, and I did it, and I knew it. And that's how it works. Yeah, you can follow all the rules, and that's the difference. Jesus came to change all that because he knows we can't follow the rules. So he came because we can't follow the rules because we have to take his salvation for us. We have to accept it that way. And what he did is he turned it from rules into a heart thing. It's not about just checking off a list and I did this and this and this and this. The fact is, if your heart is different, you don't think about the rules anymore. You don't have to because it comes natural to follow the rules. It's what you want to do. Think about some of the things. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the classic uh, sermon and, and it's funny because some people who are skeptics, and I, I, I like talking to skeptics because I'm, I'm basically a skeptical person myself, and I question things, and I'm wondering why it's this way. And some skeptics, when they look at the Bible, they'll see the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, then they'll see what, what's called the Sermon on the Plain. And both of those terms, descriptors, come from the, the opening to the sermons because in Matthew it says, and Jesus went up on a mountain and said, then you've got three or four chapters of a sermon, and then in Luke, it says, and he was on the plane. So they call them different things. And if you read the two, they're similar but different. And people say, well, clearly this Bible can't be accurate because it made a mistake. <laughs> like, well, wait a minute. What if that's not the case? What, what if, like, I, I'm sure you know an evangelist here or there 
<laughs> you know what, uh, any good evangelist, and I don't mean this at all to be critical, but any good evangelist, basically what they'll do is develop five sermons a year probably, and as they travel around, they just preach those over and over and over. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. You get pretty good at it. And what was Jesus' mission? He was here to introduce the kingdom. So of course he would have preached a similar sermon in different places, and we just have a snapshot of two different versions of it that he preached in different places. My guess is he probably preached that sermon many, many times. If his, if his ministry went for three and a half years, I'm guessing he preached it probably 50, 100 times. And as you look in the book of Matthew at that sermon, there's so many things that are radical, so many things that go from rules to heart. Think about Matthew 5, 28, when he said, if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. I guarantee you every man in the crowd said, what? Are you serious? It's going to be like that now? Because I was following the rule. I was getting as close to the edge of the rule without violating, I thought. But their heart wasn't right. What about when he said, turn the other cheek. And if somebody asks you for your coat, give them your cloak as well. I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't it just doing enough to do what I'm asked to do? You're telling me I have to go above and beyond? Yeah, because if your heart's right, you're going to do that. What about when he said, uh, he said that calling someone an idiot was the same as murder? I'm sure a lot of people in the crowd are like, oh, come on. That's idiocy. I'm just kidding. They probably didn't say that. But I'm sure what they thought was, what are you saying? I can't be angry now? He said, be angry and sin not. Yeah, you can't call people those things because in your heart, what comes out of your heart? What comes out of your heart is what matters. It's not just the words themselves. It's what's behind that. What's the intent? He said to honor others and consider them greater than yourselves. He said if you wanted to be great in God's kingdom, you had to be what? The servant of all. What? Are you telling me if I'm going to be great, I've got to be low and under? Yes. He's saying that the world is, their, their laws and the way they do it is power over and forcing you to do this. What he's saying is it needs to come from up, up, um, up underneath in your heart. And you do the right thing. And because you care for people, you serve. <laughs> Oh, it's funny, because it's so radical, so radical. But you as Christians, you've heard this stuff all your life, and you're like, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and I remember I've, I've shared this quote a few times, but St. Augustine said, love God and then do whatever you want, because your heart's right. Have you ever done, have you had this experience? <laughs> maybe you came late to a party or to a conversation. You walk up, and people are talking about something, and maybe it's something, that, the, the very phrase you walk in on was just so weird and out of context, you're like, whoa, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, you had to be there, right? You ever had that happen? You ever had it happen where you walk in on a joke, and it's, they're, they're telling half the joke, and then you get the punchline, and everybody laughs, and you're like, man, I miss something, because that's not funny. I don't even understand what they're talking about. Maybe, maybe you've walked up, <laughs> I've had this experience a few times, but if you've been in an art gallery or something, you see people and they're like, mm, wow, wow, that's amazing. You walk up and you're like, I don't see, I have no idea what they're looking at, right? You don't see what they see. It's, it's as if you have to be educated to a point to appreciate why that's art or why that's incredible or why that's beautiful. Have you ever had this happen where maybe you're somewhere and people are staring out and they're just staring and they're looking and staring and pointing and you're just, you're looking at them, looking there and it's amazing, isn't it, how we can do that? We can, we can line up where their eyes, I mean, eyes are so tiny. And we're looking at somebody, and we can line up right where their eyes are. We can see where they're looking, but you don't see it. Right. Mm -hmm. Have you ever let a balloon go, and then 
at one point, people are all pointing, well, I see it over there, and you're like, I can't see it. Hmm. Maybe you've encountered somebody who speaks a different language. You ever had that happen? And maybe they're passionately trying to communicate something to you, and and you don't understand because you don't speak their language. And maybe you get a feeling for what they're talking about based on the sign language they're doing. And what do people normally do? You don't understand because you don't speak the language. So they start talking louder, right? Or they start saying it over and over and over, the same, the same word over and over and over. Or they gesture bigger, or maybe they talk slower, and I said, <laughs> you're like, that doesn't help at all. You ever played Pictionary? I love that game. <laughs> and you ever have that frustrating team member who draws something that's totally unrecognizable? And then instead of drawing more or something different, they just keep pointing at that, you're like, we don't get it. Draw something else. And then at the end, you know, they tell you what it is. You're like, that is not that. It totally doesn't look like that. What is all that? That's all context. Context is so vital for everything we do. And in so much of the way we communicate, it's based on context. And if you miss the first part, it's difficult to catch up. And sometimes you wait long enough, sometimes you can figure it out. Sometimes you're hoping somewhere to catch a clue or phone a friend or something. And with the Bible, it can be so much that way. And with life, it can be so much that way. And the truth is, anytime you get a text and you take it out of context, you can make it say a pretext for anything. There's so many things you need to know. You need, you need to know the background. Sometimes it's, you need to know what, what it meant, the culture, the, the, the situation, the way that someone from that culture would have understood it. You need to know their family of origin. How many of you have been married and you realize, oh my goodness, families do these things differently? Yeah, there's worlds are apart. You live in the same town, go to the same church, and still your family of origin determines so many things in the way you think and feel and the way you do things, the way you put the toilet paper on the roll. It can be anything. But the truth is, it really matters if you're going to understand context, even someone's life experience. You know, someone who's lived their entire life in one place has totally got a different life experience than someone who's maybe moved around a little bit. I mean, you understand things differently. (laughs) It's just how it is. You know, languages are different, obviously. And, And when we're reading the Bible, we're reading something that's been translated into English. Not only that, it's been translated from languages, and in one case, well, in Hebrew, it's, it's a very old language, but similar to what they speak in, in, in Israel now. But then with the Greek, the Greek that the Bible is translated out of isn't common Greek today. They call it Koine Greek because it's the Greek of the first century, and just like English has changed, anybody read Chaucer back in high school? Yeah, remember, remember that? Anybody even read some, some well, really, some Shakespeare's difficult to read? Because it changes. And we're reading something that's 2,000 years old and it's translated into English. It's difficult. It's different. Think about this even. You know, we've had some good snow lately. Do you know people in some Polynesian countries don't even have a word for snow? There's no reason. They've never seen it. It doesn't exist. Why would they have a word for something they don't know? And yet if you talk to the Inuit people, we, a lot of people call them Eskimos, they have, they have I think it's over 30, 40 words for snow that describe the different kinds, and we know, we know that. We know the difference between when it's sleet and when it's fluffy flakes, right? I mean, we, we know the difference, and sometimes you get those little tiny balls that are just, they're actually snow, soft snow, like you could touch them and smooth them out, and sometimes we get the actual snow crystals, you know, like when it's super cold, and we, we have different words, but it's not the same even for us because we don't live like that every day. 
Context is everything. Geography makes a big difference. Have you ever thought of that? I, I've never been to Israel. So for, for us, a lot of times, when I think Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, I mean, okay, whatever, never been there. When they talk about the Via Dolorosa, I mean, that's an actual thing. That's a way where Jesus walked with the cross. I mean, it's a place. It's a thing. He was there. I've never been there. I haven't seen it. I don't know. Sometimes it plays into the story. Sometimes it doesn't. The history, the cultures, you know, the prejudices that cultures have toward one another. I know for us, especially thinking about Martin Luther King on Monday and tomorrow, um, for us, I mean, that becomes the defining issue with cultures for us. And sometimes we feel like we're the only ones with those issues. And the fact is that those kind of issues have, uh, that's part of human experience. Remember as a kid being in the Philippines and we lived, we lived in this small um, air base right on Manila Bay. And uh, we lived in these long row, I guess they'd be kind of like a condos or apartments, I don't know. But they, they had two stories, but they're all this one long building. And, and so our yards were all kind of connected, which was great for a kid. You know, we just, everybody's yard was my yard, I'm just saying. And next door to us was our dentist, the dentist at the, uh, on the base. Well, his grandparents were from Japan, and he's Japanese, looking. I mean, he's American, spoke perfect English. I mean, he's American, been here two generations. But the Filipino people didn't know that, the ones who weren't on the base. And we were right on the edge of the bay. And I remember one time being out in my backyard, which wasn't very deep at all, and there were some people in a boat, a bon they call them banca boats, a little boat with an outrigger and they were screaming and yelling and throwing things at my neighbor's yard, and they had to run in the house. I was so like, what is going on? What is happening? And then it was explained to me later that the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, which had been, what, this would have been 70, 30 years before, was so cruel that those people saw his face and were throwing things at him. I, I, that might have been my first experience with actual you know, prejudice and racism, and you don't know that, though. If you just read the scripture, you don't know what went on between these cultures. It's, it's hard to know. There's so many differences. I mean, even difference in the gospels themselves and the way they're arranged, and you look at that and you think, God had a plan when he gave us all these things, and he gave us some very specific things. And all that to say, context means everything. You ever had this happen, though, when someone says something and you think it's plain as day? but then the people around you don't get it because it made sense to you. And I mentioned this last week. Sometimes we just don't want to understand, right? Sometimes, sometimes we're just really in another place and we're, or, or we're not paying attention or we're maybe bored or, or distracted or maybe we're not interested or don't care or, or maybe it's because what they're saying is so painful we just can't listen, really. What if, what if, what if in the Bible sometimes when you read these stories, they just didn't have spiritual eyes yet? I know it's a weird term. I know some of you are thinking, what is he talking about here? I get that. But what, what, what I'm saying is, what, what if their culture and family of origin and their life experiences up to this point, I'm talking about the disciples specifically, meant that they couldn't really understand what Jesus was saying sometimes? What if they weren't quite spiritually mature I mean, it'd be way different if they were carrying their copy of the Bible, but the Bible hadn't been written yet. None of this had happened. It wasn't like that. Nobody explained anything. What if, have you heard this about people? I mean, you, you know people who are spiritually, and, and what I mean by spiritualized, let me just try to define it down. You know people who are really spiritual, right? And I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just trying to show us the differences. But you know, you've heard that term, somebody who's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. 
It's almost like they spiritualize everything. That's not what I'm talking about, really. Maybe you talk to somebody whose head's in the clouds or everything's good, and and you want to talk to them, and it's like they're so optimistic. It's almost like they're Pollyanna where nothing bad could ever happen, and you're like, I don't know if you're even realistic. And on the other hand, there's people who we say, well, then everything's bad, or maybe there's a demon behind every rock, or everything's horrible, or I'm not really even talking about those things. What I'm talking about is the fact that when Jesus was here, there were times where he was talking about very spiritual, deep truths, and there's a reason, and I think it's understandable at times, that the disciples missed it, but they missed it. And well, here's what's true, is we miss it too. That the truth is that even us who have the Bible have this experience. There's times where we're walking through life and things are very spiritual and we're not seeing it that way. Maybe for the same reasons. But as we look at the story right here, we're going to look at how the disciples missed it, and then we're going to look at this woman who misses it, but then she gets it. I want us to be like her. I want us to be like her, where we start to develop a, way, a, a, a depth with Jesus where we see him differently and know him differently. Let's take a look at this. Jesus knew, this is John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. And so he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. I don't know if you can see that map very well, but... If you look at the map here, it says that he left Judea and was going to Galilee, which is north. And you see that huge section where it says Samaria, and in the middle there is, is that town of Sychar where he ended up going to. And maybe you've heard this in a sermon before, where it says he had to go through Samaria. I don't know if you heard this before. He didn't have to. And now that would be the most direct route. I mean, obviously, that's straight up, and the dis- shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But most Jews avoided Samaria altogether. They would even actually add sometimes an entire day to their trip and go around through Jordan along the Jordan River to avoid Samaria. And there's a lot of history there. Like I was saying, the fact is the history there is deep and sad. Let me just give you some of the history that you may have never heard of. I'd never heard of this still studying for the sermon. In the year 128 B.C., so unless you think that's too far removed from this experience, you know how people have long memories. The Jewish king uh, Herankinus destroyed the Samaritan's temple in 128 B.C. That was a big deal. Between A.D. 6 and 9, so this would have been recent, this would have been in the recent memory there, the Samaritans defiled the Jewish temple during Passover, of all things, by scattering dead men's bones in it. What that would have meant is that the temple would have had to have been purified and people wouldn't have been allowed to go in there during the holiest ceremony of the year. That would have been just a few years before this incident right here. In A.D. 52, so this would have been a little after, I'm just showing you the tension here, pilgrims from Galilee traveling through Samaria en route to Jerusalem were massacred by Samaritans. And if you don't know the fuller history, I mentioned this, I've mentioned this before, but when the, when the Jews were taken into captivity both by Assyria and then by Babylon, some people were left, they intermarried, and they also changed the Jewish religion a little bit so that they didn't worship in the same place. There are huge differences. There are ethnic issues, religious issues, but even more than that. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Some people read this and they say, wait a minute, I thought he was God. Yes, he was God, but he was fully human. He was affected like us. He was tired. Isn't it weird to think of Jesus being tired? He was tired. 
just like you and me, and he sits down there. And then soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Now he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Some people look at this and they say, well, wait a minute, he had 12 disciples. Didn't want someone hang out with Jesus? Remember that phrase in the beginning, he had to go there? I believe this. I believe it started there. He was on a divine mission, and, and the disciples didn't know. They, didn't, they were clueless, really. And so he says, why don't you all go into town? And they're like, okay, boom, they go. No idea that Jesus has a mission, and he knows this is going to take place. So then the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking for a drink? You may wonder, how does she know he was a Jew? Well, probably his dialect, the way he spoke, the way he was dressed. She would have known that. And what's funny is I came across in, in studying, there was a, you know, the, the rabbis would write all these opinions on things. And one of the opinions talks about that, that a, a Jewish man cannot talk to a Samaritan woman or any woman in public, even his wife. Isn't that weird? We, just didn't, we wouldn't think of that today. We would never consider that being an issue. But for them in this culture, it was an issue. So when Jesus spoke to her, he was violating all these cultural norms. He was doing something that was radical. When I say Jesus changed everything, you need to understand, he changed everything. He looked at a culture that was broken and racist and misogynist and had all these issues, and he looked at that and he broke it all apart. He did it at, at no small risk to himself. Obviously, he died for it, but he did it. I mean, not only was he violating the, the, the fact that Jews didn't talk to them, but then he also talked to a woman, and that was forbidden, and then he even talked about her giving him a drink. Now, maybe you don't realize this. This is how severe it would have been for them. Had he touched her vessel that she was drinking from and drunk the water, maybe even sharing some of that water, you know, you don't share cups, right, with each other, right? He would have been impure according to the Jewish standards and not able to go even into the temple. Now he was headed to Galilee away from the temple, but the, it still stands the fact that he would have been ceremonially unclean because he touched a woman and this woman, a Samaritan, and shared a vessel with her. Unheard of. And she knew it. She knew that. She knew the rules. Imagine what that made her feel like. Even walking up, I bet you when she saw him, she immediately thought, he thinks I'm not good enough. I bet she thought, he probably is disgusted by my presence here. Imagine that, people in the presence of Jesus and thinking that he doesn't love or care for them. Wow. Jesus replied, if you only knew. So here's that interplay between spiritual eyes and regular eyes. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. If you only knew, if you only knew. Can you imagine speaking to Jesus at all? I know we've probably thought of this before and, and, and maybe you do think about that, I don't know. And, and when you pray, I'm sure you realize you're speaking to God and I get that. But, but something about if you were on earth and he was there, what would that be like? What would his voice sound like? Would you feel or sense anything different? I wonder if she did. And when he said that, I wonder if there was any enlightenment starting to dawn on her at all. If you only knew. I don't know yet. But he says that thing about living water, and she's there drawing water. She has a clear and distinct physical need she's trying to meet. And then he's talking about some spiritual uh, solution to that. And so she says, but sir, 
You don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? <laughs> it's great, isn't it? She, she didn't realize who she was talking to, and she didn't realize what he was offering to her. And she was looking at the physical and the normal world, which we all do. We live in the physical world. And so often we're in the physical world and we can't see the spiritual, and Jesus is right there and we don't even sense or know him. What she's saying is true, though. That well... That well, they say, was like 30 meters deep. What is that, 100 feet? It's deep. And it would have been lined with, with brick all the way down. You would have had to have a rope and a certain bucket. They say usually it would have been like a leather bucket. <laughs> Even her watering pot she has, she couldn't have lowered that in there. She would have lowered the, the bucket thing and then filled her pot. So she's looking at him and says, you have no way to give me anything. You have nothing for me. How often do we do that? We have a problem or an issue or a situation Maybe you're at church, maybe right now. And I'm telling you Jesus has an answer and you're saying, no, I have a problem and he can't solve it. He has no way to give me what you say he has. Because you in the physical, you can't see it. And I understand. I, I'm, I'm the same. I have issues that I don't see how he can fix. I, I talk to people every, every day nearly that have issues that I think, God, somehow you have to intervene, you have to fix this. And I don't know how that is. Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Eternal life. <laughs> he was playing on words here too because what, what's interesting is if you study this, the, the, the people of that area, the Jews, they thought that water from a spring was holier, better than water that sat in a well. Did you ever taste the spring water? Fresh water? It is better, isn't it? So it's no wonder that they would think that. So he's telling her, you don't understand. This water I'm offering you, it's spring water. And it's going to give you life and it's going to bubble inside you. And he's talking about something she has no context to understand. No possible way to understand. And I'm sure her head is still swimming and thinking... You still don't have a bucket. You still have no way to give me anything. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told okay, let's stop right there. She goes, okay, well, if it means I don't have to come to this well over and over and over, yeah, give me this water. I'll be, I'll be, I'm, that'd be awesome. And then Jesus, again, see, she's in the physical. He's talking spiritual, so he changes. Isn't it interesting? We, we think our need is the most important thing, and there's times in our lives where what God wants to do with us is way beyond our need that we're looking at. It's as if we bring this thing to him and say, God, I need you this, 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 and this. And he comes and he says, you know what? Actually, what you need is this. So he changes his, the whole dynamic and subject. He says, go and get your husband. Jesus told her, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. <laughs> what would you do if Jesus read your mail like that? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> she says, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Notice the changes. What was he at first to her? A Jew. He's starting to change. Now he's a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim and, and where our ancestors worshipped? 
that let me, okay, let's be fair for just, or honest, or just let's think about this. If, <laughs> if you were with Jesus and he started telling you things that he could not have known at all, would you have stepped back a little and say, whoa, 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 right? But she can't do it yet. She's still kind of defensive, and she starts throwing something else at him. You know what it reminds me of? There's this comedian I'm not endorsing at all, but I heard him, and I'm, I've, I've changed his, his joke a little bit, but he tells this joke about how he's up late, and he can't sleep, and he wants to sleep, but he can't, so he, he gets up, and he's sitting in his recliner in his robe and eating Cheetos, and because the only thing in the fridge is eggnog. He's drinking eggnog, and he's got the TV on, and there's late-night preacher on. Anybody watch late night preachers ever? Not so much anymore, but back in the day, this preacher looks in the camera. He says, there's someone out there. Someone out there who can't sleep. Right? Who's watching that who can't? Okay. Someone out there who can't sleep. You're sitting in a recliner. And the guy's starting to go, whoa. You got your robe on. Oh, my goodness. You're eating Cheetos. He's like, and drinking eggnog. Whoa. And you're going to give me $1,000. And the guy goes, man, that was close. I thought he was talking about me. <laughs> this is her. He's talking to her, but she can't, she can't receive it yet, right? I mean, it's so clear that, I mean, we look at this and we say, oh my goodness, wouldn't that just change everything? You would stop in your tracks. But the fact is, we do it too. How many times has God spoke to you so clearly and promised you this or that or, or corrected this or that and we still fall back into what we are and, and in this case, she just throws back at him this whole thing about worship and who worships where and she's really getting into the detail and, and some people being kind to her have said, well, if she thinks he's a prophet, maybe she's just really going to him and saying, well, can you figure this out for me because I don't understand this and maybe that is it. But regardless, here's a guy that, that has the answer. She knows he's something and she still is being defensive. So Jesus tells her, he says, he says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you, whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Remember he changed everything? Remember we talked a few weeks ago about how the temple was completely torn down, every stone removed, thrown into the valley below? He knew that. He was trying to tell her, it's not about a place. God isn't a local deity that you have to go to to worship. He is, a, he is a God that walks with you. And he says, he's changed everything. He says, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not about following the rules and going to this place or going to this temple or wearing this or not wearing this or whatever. It's, it's you and your heart having your heart right. He's trying to help her see it. And she's progressing along that. It's true worship, true worship. So then she says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. She's still not getting it. The one who is called Christ, in case you're wondering, it's, Christ is in, in Greek and Messiah is in Hebrew. She uses those two languages, meaning the chosen one, the promised one. Same name, same word, just different languages. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, in the original Greek, it literally says, I am he. I am he. Now, in its English translation, it helps us understand that he is the Messiah. We get that. Anybody notice the I am He's trying to tell her, I am. 
That's what, that's what the, the voice from the burning bush said when Moses said, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh is sending me? He said, I am. Meaning not I was and I will be. I am. I always am. How else would you define a God that is, that is self-existent and everywhere? And he says that. And then just then the disciples come back. And they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. They had no idea what's going on. Can't believe he's talking to a woman. And none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? And the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everybody, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. That's amazing. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging uh, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I, I, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. You guys are not spiritually minded yet. You don't have spiritual eyes yet. They said, did someone bring him food while we were gone? Disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. The rest of the story is cool. I mean, what happens is, is they do, she goes and tells everybody, and they, they bring, and the, the entire, it says that, that, that a multitude of them believed because of what she said, and then when they heard them for themselves, then they believed. And then they asked Jesus to do something that would have been unheard of, to stay with them for two days. Again, violating all their cultural norms. And the story doesn't end there, which is cool too. If you go all the way to the book of Acts chapter eight, one of the first revivals recorded in the New Testament is in Samaria. Philip the evangelist goes there and there's a revival and it's so big that Peter and John send, they go there and then do you remember the story? Then Peter gets taken by the Spirit to, uh, he's the one then who goes and talks to the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. It doesn't end there. This, this revival started here but it doesn't end there. So what can we learn from all this? Let me just quickly just mention some things we can learn. First thing is this, one of our core values as a church, everyone matters to God. Everyone Everyone matters to God. He was willing to transgress all the ethnic issues. Look at this verse in Ephesians. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. That's what I was talking about with communion. His own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility, separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups. It doesn't end there. And I mentioned this verse as well. The, the, the ethnic issues, the, the gender issues, the socioeconomic issues, they're no longer Gentile, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So let me ask you, who are you willing to tell or unwilling to tell? Or is there anybody beyond, there's nobody beyond his reach, is there any beyond our reach? Friends, family, frenemies, people who irritate you, <laughs> people, <laughs> think you, people who you think are beyond his love. Let me, let me, think of it. Let me just mention this. This is something else that's interesting. Remember, remember that whole deal about five husbands and the one you're married to isn't even your husband? Jesus didn't get stuck there, did he? You know what's interesting? In Jewish uh, law from that day, a woman could be married three times. That's it. And that's assuming that each of the marriages ended with, with an official divorce and all that stuff. But after that, you could no longer be married. They didn't, they didn't accept that anymore. The only point to make there, or the point I'm trying to make is, she was beyond reach to the Jewish faith, but not to Jesus. She, 
people in her day might have looked at her as gone too far. Okay, you've, you've gone way too far. No, nobody's beyond his reach. Nobody, nobody is beyond his love. There may be people you think are that far. Maybe they failed you too many times. Let me say this, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, but let's just talk for a minute. You can follow Jesus a long time and still not see spiritually. And you can get to a place, place where you stop seeing. You used to, and now you don't. Because either you get too used to it or you just get old to it or maybe your own conscience has gotten a little bit um, hard. I want to see what he sees. I want to see people the way he sees them. And I want to have compassion without compromise. Do, do you realize he did that? He didn't condone anybody's sin. He didn't. But he still loved them and he still reached out to them. And he can still, do you realize he still responded to all her questions? He just, he just responded to what she actually needed. And her spiritual eyes, they grew. They, she saw him as a Jew, then Lord, then prophet, then ultimately the Christ. Let me ask you this. Let's get to the point. What would it take for you to develop spiritual eyes? What would it take? I, I think the number one thing, this is true with everything. You gotta be willing to see. You have to be willing. It's the old joke about how many, have you heard this? How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? It doesn't really matter. What matters is if the light bulb wants to be changed. You have to want to be changed. You have to want to see. No one can see for you. No one can make you see. You have to want to be see. To see, you have to do it. You have to be willing to see. You don't know what you don't know. We don't know. We don't know what people are walking through. It takes a certain amount of humility to be able to see past what we know or what we think we know, to really have a compassion for people. It's easy sometimes, and I'm, I mean a compassion for people, even people in your own home maybe, or maybe someone sit right next to you, or you know that line about hate the sin and love the sinner? Can you really love the sinner? Because if you love the sinner, you treat him different. It's not a cliche. It's a real thing. Can you do that? You can if you have spiritual eyes. I'm going to ask you to do something. I wrote this a couple times and erased it. And then, Anyway, think of someone you hate. Some of you thought of somebody, I know. And maybe that's too harsh. Think of someone you dislike, someone you can't stand. Maybe someone, can you love them the way Jesus loves them? Because he does. Can you hate their sin and yet have compassion for their eternal soul? It's kind of a big ask, isn't it? There's a lot of hate out there today, whether it's ethnic or political or whatever. There's a lot. It's not Jesus' way. You know how you change those things? One is you pray for them. And I know that sounds strange. You might think, I'm not praying for them. What would I pray? You know what? Praying for them changes both of you, you and them. Praying for somebody in that situation gives you a, a change of heart. Here's something I don't want you to ever forget. Prayer is actually a very supernatural act. Sometimes we do it so effortlessly, and I get it, and you're praying in the car, you're praying wherever, and I, I know that, but it's supernatural. Do not forget, you are communicating with the God of the universe, and he has power that is beyond your expectation. Maybe you need to pray for forgiveness or to forgive. Look at Jesus from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing, and we feel like we can't forgive, yet he's forgiving in the middle of his passion itself. 
Colossians says, make allowance for each other's faults. They don't know. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't change. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Just the ones who you like who offend you. Just the ones who think like you who offend you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. You've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus changed everything. And in that way, you'll be acting as true sons of your Father in heaven. Galatians 6.1, dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently, humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. It's often been said that, that the Christian army is the only one that shoots our wounded. You ever heard that? How do we change? To me, this is the ultimate heart change right here. This, this verse comes, um, I don't want to give the whole detail, but Peter and John were walking into the temple. Jesus already risen from the dead. The church is growing. They walk into the temple. There's a blind man. They, they tell him, silver and gold, I don't, I don't have any silver and gold for you, but what I have, I'll give you. Stand up and be healed. He's healed. They get pulled in front of the court, the Jewish court, and as the Jewish court is interviewing them, interrogating them, the members of the council,